Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have two very special guests. Their names are, are Tim Brennan and Gary Fannin. Brennan, B-R-E-N-N-A-N. And Gary's last name is spelled F-A-N-N-I-N. And they've just published a book. Very interesting. Some new information that I wasn't aware of. title of the book is JFK Marked for Death. Who Stood to Lose if JFK Had Lived? It was just published. And uh, there was uh, another book that has been put out by Gary. Title of that is The Innocence of Oswald, 60 Years of Lies, Deception, and Deceit in the Murders of President JFK and Officer J.D. Tippett. The new version was just put out in April 2023. And uh, really fascinating. A lot of different people are involved. And some of the stuff I wasn't aware of, things about the Secret Service and the Dallas Police Department. And also they cover the mainstream media. But they can talk more about that so Jim, Tim, and Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. For people who may not have heard of you, uh, can you kind of talk about your background and what led up to you guys working together to put together put Tim, together this book, JFK Mark? Why don't you go first, Tim? Well, Gary and I met uh, back in 1994, uh, serendipitously. He had been interested in the JFK assassination uh, since uh, he was assigned to write a book report on that in the uh, High school, I believe it was. It was a grade school, but nonetheless, that that began to pique his interest way back. Uh, my interest was uh, I was 12 years old when uh, JFK was assassinated, and uh, what really piqued my interest uh, because we were Irish Catholic Democrat, and we all knew who Kennedy was. I had no idea who Lyndon Johnson was. But as a 12-year-old, I happened to see a picture of LBJ taking the office of oath on Air Force One. And the first time I laid eyes on him, I said to my mother, I don't trust that man. And she said, Tim, why not? And I said, Mom, I can't tell you. I just don't trust him. And I think as most researchers would tell you today, we know for a fact that LBJ was intimately involved. Uh, but when Gary and I met, um, I quickly learned that he was uh, very much a fan uh, and a student of the JFK assassination. And uh, the more we talked, the more we finally had a common interest um, that not only sparked a friendship that has lasted to this day, but has lasted. Uh, uh, we've worked together on several jobs and uh, came together to write this book and came together to write the second version of the uh, Oswald book. Uh, fun for both of us. Both learned a lot of things that we never knew. Uh, because the books are based uh, largely on government documentation. So these books aren't our opinion of what happened. They are uh, what we believe actually happened. Right. And you have a lot of documentation, actual, you know, historical records in this book throughout all these chapters. So I commend you for that. And uh, what would you like to add here? Well, I would just like to add to it that, Again, uh, when we did the second version of The Innocence of Oswald, I tell everybody that particular book, like Tim said, it's not conjecture, okay? Everything in there is backed up by either three credible witnesses or a government document from the FBI, the CIA, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Secret Service, Dallas Police Reports, Dallas Affidavits, Dallas Autopsy Reports. And if you follow the paper trail of Lee Harvey Oswald, he is 100% innocent. In fact, when I first got into this case in 1980, like Tim said, I had to do a report when I was in 10th uh, uh, grade, and I literally just threw JFK's name out of a hat. 
And uh, when I went to Dallas for the first time in 1987, this was before it was a museum. You could actually stand in that sixth floor corner window. And I actually have a photograph in the book uh, of that window before it was a museum that I personally took. Uh, and one of the things that I quickly realized was there's no way this happened the way they said it did. And in 1987, we had a beautiful thing called a phone book. And I literally went down to the corner of uh, Maine and Houston, looked up Jim Lavelle, the officer that was handcuffed to Oswald, the lead investigative officer in the case, looked up Jim Lavelle's number and called him from right there at the payphone. said I was interested in the Kennedy assassination, asked if I could come out and talk to him. He said, yeah. And um, I immediately went to either Walmart or Target or somewhere like that to purchase a cassette recorder because I didn't plan on interviewing anybody. Uh, but from that point on, I've been full steam forward. And one of the most ironic things that Jim Lavelle said to me in that first interview, and again, this is the lead detective in charge of the case. He said to me, Gary, had we gone to trial on what we had on Lee Harvey Oswald at the time of his death, he would have never have been found guilty. And from that point on, every time I went back to Dallas, I was making phone calls, um, setting up interviews. And then in 1990, I finally bought a handheld camcorder thing, probably weighed 20 pounds, put it on a uh, tripod. And so I started filming uh, the interviews as well. Um, and like I said, with Tim, um, he is one of the first friends, researchers that uh, got me on the Johnson uh, was behind it theory. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the JFK Mark for Death book is all about the people and the agencies, uh, organizations that had something to lose if JFK had been reelected. And the final chapter, besides the two paragraphs on Lee Harvey Oswald, the final chapter is about Lyndon Johnson's involvement. And again, it's all documented. It's all fact-based. And he was a very corrupt individual and probably the most corrupt we've ever had at uh, the to sit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and that's saying a lot compared to what we've had recently. <laughs> right, that is saying a lot, and there's some remarkable documents in that G, uh, LBJ section I hadn't seen before. It was a letter from, I think, Douglas Caddy to Stephen Trott in 1984, kind of outlining, and this was not common knowledge at the time, outlining all of the nefarious activities of Johnson. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, Douglas Caddy is still alive. Uh, he was the attorney for actually E. Howard Hunt and the Watergate burglars originally back in 1972. Um, but Douglas still lives in uh, Houston. I've communicated with him several times. But that particular letter, he was representing Billy Solestes. And Billy Solestes was in prison at the time. And Billy Solestes provided information to Douglas Caddy who, again, forwarded on to the U.S. Attorney General's office, stating that, you know, this and this was after 13 years after Johnson was dead, stated that, hey, we have documented proof that uh, he's involved in these eight, assassin eight murders, uh, including some while he was in the White House and as vice president, mind you. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't have the documentation, but Billy Solestes, uh, even verified with me uh, that the list was actually 17 people uh, total, but he didn't have documentation on the other nine. That was all through a 
personal conversation that he had with uh, uh, one of LBJ's aides, Clifford Clark. Right, and so they tied that. And also in that note, he ties uh, Mac Wallace to Ruby to Oswald, right? So that's kind of the correct uh, connection. And also I just showed a picture for people that watching on Rockfin. That is Lavelle. And if you people have seen the shooting of Ruby shooting Oswald with this kind of larger guy with a white hat, white suit, that's Lavelle, right? So very important for historical figure. He was the one who kind of led Ruby out, I mean, uh, Oswald out. But um, yeah, so Johnson was involved in all kinds of nefarious things. And you place, can you talk about Mac Wallace and why he's important? Go ahead, Tim. Well, he uh, had worked for Johnson uh, back when Johnson was a senator. And uh, he was basically Johnson's hitman. He carried out all the murders. Uh, some of the most uh, heinous are uh, the murder of Josepha Johnson on Christmas Day. Uh, Johnson had to get rid of her because she was a uh, drug user and alcoholic and had a loud mouth. And he couldn't afford that. Couldn't afford. And she was privy to all of, all of his dirty secrets. But Mac Wallace is the only person probably in the history of Texas to be convicted of capital murder and walk out of court that day uh, after 12 jurors, 11 jurors had recommended the death penalty because he, he murdered a golf pro in plain daylight uh, in front of all kinds of people, got pulled over and said, you can't arrest me. I worked for Senator Johnson. Uh, anyway, went to court. Johnson put one of his buddies in as the judge. Uh, Johnson took a hotel room across the street so he could monitor the proceedings. Jury came back, uh, 11 for the death penalty, 12 for uh, life in prison with no chance of parole. Uh, the judge uh, took their recommendation and immediately sentenced him to five years of probation, and he walked out of court a free man. Uh, he was the one who probably was responsible for most of those 17 murders that Gary just mentioned. Now, interestingly enough, I believe it was in 1971, he himself died in a single car accident in the middle of nowhere on a bright, clear day. Uh, no autopsy was ever done. So he's a very interesting figure wrapped up intimately, uh, not only in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but uh, the assassination of many other people who Lyndon Johnson needed to be out of the way so he could continue his ascent to the presidency. Right, and uh, somebody and placed him... If I could add to that, uh, William, the, um, that was the, uh, the whole thing that got me turned on with the Billy Solvestes is because Billy Solvestes was involved with illegal cotton allotments with Lyndon Johnson. They were basically selling um, land over and over and getting people to get government loans. And basically it was a, a Ponzi scheme type of thing. And one of the things that Johnson became worried about that through Billy Solvestes is the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, figure down in Texas, guy by the name of Henry Marshall, started looking into the illegal cotton allotments with Billy Solestes. And Billy Solestes was trying to warn Johnson that, hey, if he comes after me, he's going to be coming after you. This is all tied together. And Johnson tried to bribe Henry Marshall with a federal position in Washington, D.C. And again, when he didn't accept that position, I believe on June 3rd, 1961, while Johnson was vice president, uh, he was eliminated again by Mac Wallace. Now, Mac Wallace is like with uh, LBJ's sister, Josepha, like Tim was saying, his mode of operation, standard operating procedure was uh, carbon monoxide. 
So he would, you know, somehow subdue you, hit you, knock you out or whatever, and then just, uh, you know, drag you back like what he did with Henry Marshall. He dragged him back by the back of the truck and when he was passed out and hoping that uh, carbon monoxide would kill him. Well, he got nervous because he heard people coming because the family was out looking for Henry Marshall because he didn't return home. And he got nervous. And when he got nervous, he took Henry Marshall's own rifle out of his pickup truck and shot him five times with a bolt action rifle to make sure he was dead. And um, it's ironic that the uh, sheriff, uh, I believe it was in Robinson County, ruled it a, a suicide. So somehow uh, this uh, poor agricultural official uh, shot himself five times uh, with a bolt action rifle before he killed himself. Yeah, it's remarkable. Like this is the first suicided type of people uh, around Johnson. And uh, I think Estes fingered Walt Wallace as the grassy knoll shooter. Do you think that that has the credibility or credence? Well, I, I don't think it's credible uh, only because um, in our uh, investigations, uh, Professor Walt Brown back in the late 90s found a fingerprint that was uh, basically uh, concealed for over 30 years uh, of a fingerprint on a cardboard box in the actual southeast corner sniper's window. Now, that fingerprint was taken to Nathan Darby, a certain latified print examiner, and he originally determined there was 14 um, identifying points of that fingerprint with Malcolm Wallace's 1951 arrest card for murdering uh, Douglas Kinzer. And after a couple more months of review, he actually had a 34-point match and I believe in a court of law, you only need seven points a match. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, 10 points a match uh, in order for it to be used in court. So he had 14 points at one point, then 34. And then, of course, it got sent up to the uh, FBI lab for their analysis. And they claimed it wasn't a match and then ma magically lost the fingerprint. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, strange things with evidence around the JFK assassination, isn't there? And there's all kind of kind of leads you to the people surrounding not just LBJ, not just the CIA, but there was a lot going on in Dallas at that time. Some of the interesting things in your book are about the Secret Service and the Dallas PD. Can you kind of talk a little bit about both of those uh, people involved in this? Yeah, Tim, why don't you uh, start and I'll fill in whatever you don't cover. Well, I, I, the thing I think is most interesting about the Secret Service is that they, uh, if you... Uh, uh, know who Vince uh, Palomar is. He's probably the world's foremost expert on the Secret Service. And he's written several great books about uh, about them um, and about uh, the many lapses in normal Secret Service protocol that took place from the time uh, JFK arrived at Love Field uh, until, and even, even after uh, his assassination. Um, and they were uh, basically told to stand down. Uh, uh, and that, that order came from Johnson to the uh, Secret Service agent in charge uh, of that trip. Um, the first thing he did was order Secret Service agents off the back of the limousine as it left Love Field. Uh, you can see a guy clearly raving, waving his hands go, why? What's wrong? What did I do wrong? Um, so they then if you look at things along the parade route, there would never have been one open window anywhere along the parade route. Uh, if they had followed normal protocol, they would have been in that building in a heartbeat uh, up to that floor and trying to figure out why that window was open. Um, that's the most glaring uh, lapse of protocol uh, that took place. Gary? Yeah, and also 
as Tim said, Vince Palomara, between the, the evening when they had landed in Fort Worth uh, on the 21st until after the assassination, they actually violated 16 different rules of presidential protection, including going out drinking uh, the night before, some staying as late as 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the biggest um, violation that they did was literally at gunpoint, um, Agent Kellerman uh, at gunpoint basically drew his gun when Dr. Earl Rose, the uh, coroner in Dallas County, was trying to keep the body in Texas to do an autopsy. And he was basically pushed against the wall. Like I said, Kellerman drew his gun and said, you know, this is the president of the United States. Uh, and we're taking him back to Washington. And, you know, they, they glossed it over in the Warren Commission, trying to act like, well, Jackie wasn't, you know, going to leave without the president's body, and she wanted to get back immediately. That's all a fairy tale. Um, she would have stayed there for as long as needed uh, for a proper autopsy of her husband, just like Ethel Kennedy did with RFK. Yeah, and, and the fact of that, to underscore that, um, believe it or not, it was not illegal to murder the president in 1963. Well, it wasn't a federal crime. It wasn't a federal crime. So mm -hmm. the Secret Service illegally removed his body from Dallas County and flew it up to Bethesda. Now, the, it's still an open case, open case on, in, you know, in Dallas County as an unsolved murder. And they had no right to whisk his body away and, and had to put a guy at gunpoint, the coroner who should have done the job. Of course, they couldn't afford that because then the conspiracy would have been blown wide open. Um, so they, they couldn't let him do it, uh, but literally put him at gunpoint in order to steal the body away. And, and the other thing that, you know, again, that the uh, Johnson administration made sure of was that the three doctors that were actually to perform JFK's autopsy, uh, Dr. Humes, Boswell, and Fink, none of them had ever done an autopsy involving criminal gunshot wounds before. Um, so, again, it, it's just it's a fabrication from start to finish. Um, if you if you again, if you look at the actual chain of evidence, all the documentation that we have in both of these books, Oswald is 100 percent innocent in these crimes. Right. But the, one of the things you emphasize is that these Secret Service agents, they had to have prior knowledge. Right. So that's another kind of glaring problem with the whole Oswald. I, I, as I wouldn't say all of them had prior knowledge, but obviously Kellerman and Greer, uh, you know, Greer was driving the car that day. Kellerman was his boss, uh, who was in the uh, front seat with um, uh, Greer in the uh, presidential limousine. They knew about it. Obviously, Emory Roberts, like Tim said, the special agent in charge, he knew about it. And uh, I would, I would I won't say that he knew about it, but I think he had his doubts, and that would be Rufus Youngblood, who was the agent assigned to Johnson, because when the first shot rang out in Dealey Plaza, Rufus turned to cover Lyndon Johnson, and he actually admits in his Warren Commission testimony that Johnson was already laying on the floorboard of the car, and he said in his Warren Commission testimony, Johnson either knew it was happening or he's one jumpy son of a bitch. Remarkable, and there was kind of weird things like Greer was just put into his position six yeah. weeks earlier. There was people moved around, like yeah. somebody was moving the pieces around, like a chessboard or something. Yeah, because his uh, his original driver, one of his original drivers, he had several, but one of his original drivers, Tom Shipman, 
uh, died mysteriously and alone at Camp David on October 14, 1963. Um, after he had just completed a, a physical in September of that year, uh, again, they claimed he had a heart attack. He was 51 years old, healthy, good-looking, normal-sized weight. Um, but again, no autopsy was performed. And, um, you know, I also find it interesting. I don't know if you picked this up or not in the books, but uh, after the body arrived back at uh, Andrews Air Force Base, and originally it was supposed, well, it actually did go by chopper, but for the American public, they offloaded the casket and put it in a gray Navy ambulance. And before that gray Navy ambulance uh, leaves Andrews Air Force Base, Agents Kellerman and Greer remove the Navy personnel from the ambulance and drive the, the hearse to Bethesda at that point. So they controlled the whole way, right? All the Absolutely. way to Bethesda. Wow. wow. Correct. And one, of the, one of the other, um, you know, great stories that validates this point is um, one of the original Honor Guard members, Hubert Clark. Hubie uh, was a friend of Tim and I's. Uh, he passed away, unfortunately, December 1st, 2020. But he tells a story about how Lieutenant Byrd had the six Honor Guard members fly in a helicopter, and they literally shadowed the ambulance all the way from Andrews to Bethesda. And when they uh, were getting close to Bethesda, they went ahead and landed. They got in the back of a pickup truck. They went to the moored dock and... The ambulance went to the front of the uh, uh, entrance to drop off Jackie and Bobby. And at that point, Lieutenant Byrd said, we're not removing the remains until Jackie and Bobby go inside the hospital. And at that point, they go inside and the ambulance comes around to the morgue dock and it starts backing up to unload JFK's casket. And Hubie says, all of a sudden, you know, the ambulance just took off. He goes, Lieutenant Byrd ordered us back in the pickup truck. He goes, we're chasing this thing around the grounds of Bethesda. He goes, and after a couple minutes, he goes, you know, the driver of the truck knew Bethesda very well. He goes, after a couple minutes, he didn't know who was driving, but it was actually Kellerman at this point. Kellerman shut off the lights to the ambulance, and they actually lost the pickup truck for about 10 minutes, and they kept circling the grounds of Bethesda, and on the third pass at the moored dock, the ambulance was sitting there with Godfrey McHugh waiting for the uh, honor guard to unload the body. And it's ironic that when this testimony was given to Tim and I by Hubie, when we asked Dennis David, who was the officer of the day, um, you know, about his viewpoint of the story, because we asked Hubie, what time did you take the, the coffin into the ante room of the morgue? And he said it was about 7 o'clock at night. And when we asked Dennis, David Dennis, he said, well, I don't know what those boys are talking about. He goes, we had the body on the table at 635. It's just it's so many strange things around the, this whole JFK case. And then you also have a pretty long section on Abraham Bolden. Can you tell the audience about him and why he's important? Yeah, Abraham was uh, working for the Secret Service in uh, Chicago, uh, primarily in the um, what the Secret Service was originally formed uh, for was for uh, counterfeiting. And he was working in the counterfeit division of the Secret Service in Chicago and when President Kennedy in uh, 1961 made a trip to, I believe it was Soldier Field uh, for a football game, maybe it was Army, Navy, I can't remember, but uh, uh, Army Air Force, I can't remember exactly. But um, 
the Secret Service did not want an African-American basically being able to be around the president. And so they assigned Abraham Bolden the position of guarding the men's room closest to where JFK would be sitting. And sure enough, during the game, JFK had to use the restroom. And when he uh, goes to the door, there's Abraham. And he asked if, uh, he goes, are you one of Mayor Daly boys or are you Secret Service? He goes, no, Mr. President. He goes, I'm Secret Service. And after JFK finished his business, he came back out and asked Mr. Bolden and said, uh, has there ever been an African-American on this uh, White House detail with the Secret Service? And Mr. Bolden said, I don't believe so. And he says, how would you like to be the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service? And so he he took that position, obviously, and went to Washington, D.C. And he was in the he was at the point of. um going back to Chicago, letting uh, his authorities, his supervisors know that, hey, the guys that are on the White House detail, they're, they're drinking, they're uh, taking government cars, picking up, you know, mistresses, women, going out partying. And, you know, they're, they're not, their interest is not the, the president, protecting the president of the United States. And sure enough, when uh, the president was killed, uh, Abraham Bolden was very upset. And the following May in 64, he had to go back to Washington, D.C. for further training. And while he was there with other Secret Service agents, uh, him and one of the other Secret Service agents left for lunch one day. And he decided to call uh, J. Lee Rankin, who was the uh, counsel for the Warren Commission. And he wanted to give him this information about the, uh, the guys assigned to the White House detail, how they were not. Uh, interested in protecting the president. And of course, you know, J. Lee Rankin is surprised by this information and asked um, Abraham, where are you at? And he goes, I'm at a phone booth at, you know, 12th and K or wherever it was. And he said, well, stay right there. He goes, I'm going to have somebody come immediately to pick you up. And what they did was he sent the FBI to pick uh, Abraham up. And instead of going back to, um, the White House or uh, National Archives or wherever the uh, the Warren Commission was holding their meetings that particular day, uh, they immediately flew Abraham Bolden back to Chicago, charged him with uh, trying to sell a secret government file to a known uh, informant. Um, and Abraham was sentenced uh, to six years of prison and... The uh, first thing that he did when he went into prison, and and this is required, is they have a psychiatric evaluation, and they they deemed that uh, Abraham was mentally unstable. And so they put him in the psychiatric ward, and he actually stayed on that ward, I believe, for four and a half years. And then one day, he gets released back in the general population, and the guys that knew him for the pre, you know, the one month that he was out in general, they, they were surprised to see him again. They thought he'd been shipped off somewhere. And he goes, uh, he goes, no, I've been in the psych ward. And he goes, I don't know how I got out. And they're like, you haven't heard? And he goes, what are you talking about? And it's like the doctor that committed him to the psychiatric ward the night before um, got into an altercation with his wife, I believe shot her in the leg or shot at her um, and eventually hung himself in the basement of his house. And Abraham, Abraham spent, you know, four and a half years in prison of that six-year term, 
in the mental mental ward because the whole point of being in a mental ward is your time served does not count towards your total time. So he still technically has six years to serve. He ended up getting out after about six years. And um, through efforts of Tim, myself, and other researchers, uh, Abraham finally got a pardon last uh, a year ago, April 22nd, uh, 2022, by uh, President Biden. Oh, yeah, that's good. Too late, too late. But there is a weird stories about these psych doctors giving, oh, yeah, these people are crazy. They did the same thing to Ruby, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, all through these cases is like these it's kind of sinister psychiatric uh, practitioners are not well not and, on the open and, and the other thing William is in um, I didn't go into it a lot in the, my book but in um, Abraham Bolden's book The Echo from Dealey Plaza he mentions how he was put on these uh, drugs and you know the whole point is just to make him mind you know brain dead basically and he devised a plan where he would um, basically eat half of his breakfast, and then uh, take the medication uh, in front of the, the prison guard or whatever. And then when the prison guard would leave, he would stick his finger down his throat and regurgitate back out the medicine and the food and then finish his breakfast so that that drug wouldn't stay into his system. Wow. Yeah, it's a totally deliberate. They just wanted to keep his mouth shut. Wow. I mean, it's just so, so many things like that. I mean, we all the deaths that surrounded this case and the strange people who died young and uh, William, all that stuff. It, William, it's interesting. Uh, I'm amazed. The more you connect the dots, the bigger the web gets. It's just amazing. Yeah. It, it just, it just, it, it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. It, and it shows how many people were involved in this whole situation. It couldn't have been just one person. Oh, That's no. really kind of it. Yeah. The no. bigger the web gets, I like the way you put that. Yep. And the web included this guy's like Cable was like a, his brother was a CIA agent and he's the mayor or the head of chief of police, right? <laughs> like it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, Dulles met with him earlier. Like Dulles is traveling around and yeah. talking to people. I mean, there's just so many uh, pieces. I mean, it's really pretty. It's it's an unbelievable story. Such an important part of history too, because the consequences of JFK getting assassinated was really a disaster for America. The Vietnam War was a disaster for the Vietnamese, but also for the U.S. I mean, it led to the Tonkin and all this stuff, right? Well, that's uh, yeah, one of the things that's uh, near and dear to my heart because I unfortunately have traced the names of several of my friends who uh, fell victim to the war uh, when I was at the wall. And, uh, and we, we bring this out in our book, the last executive order that John F. Kennedy issued was to get us completely out of Vietnam by the end of 1964. He had said, it's their war, let them fight it. And the very first thing Johnson did was to rescind that order and begin sending more troops to Vietnam. And from my perspective, Lyndon Johnson is responsible for 50,000 American deaths in Southeast Vietnam. And, and not only that, uh, William, but uh, we put in our uh, book as well in the JFK Mark for Death, the original draft that Tim was talking about that Johnson rescinded uh, was uh, JFK's was uh, National Security Memorandum 263, Johnson's was 273, and the draft of that was actually written on November 21st, and Johnson signed off on the draft before he was president, 
And the copy that we have in the book is from the LBJ library. Wow. Yeah. So it's just right around that time. Wow. Yeah. One day before the assassination, he's already drafted his first presidential uh, uh, memorandum to increase the presence in Vietnam. And it's just, it's, it's, and William, I got to tell you, the thing that bothers me more than anything else is that to this day, they're still teaching in grade school, high school, and college that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald killed John F. Kennedy. And oh, it's, it's incredible. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, that's what I grew up on. That was the standard thing. And the, there were yeah. always, even pre internet people kind of talking, hey, this is suspect, the Warren Commission suspect. Yep. But now with the internet, you really can see all the pieces, just like you said, this broadening web. Yep. How many people really wanted JFK uh, out of the way for a uh, there's so he had so many. It was like a day of the I call it the day of the jackals. Like yep. he had like 10 jackals, not one, but yep. all these people had different things. J, uh, LBJ, Dolis, all these people had so much stuff involved. Uh, just like you said, who who stood to lose, but who stood to gain, right? Well, and, and, you know, the premise of this book is really who had motive, okay, to want JFK dead. And so we discuss in this book, there's a chapter dedicated to every organization or individual who we feel had something significant to gain by JFK's death, i.e., they had motive. Lee Harvey Oswald had no motive. Nobody's ever come up with a motive that, can, that they can defend as to why Lee Harvey Oswald wanted JFK dead. It's amazing. And, and even Jim Lavelle, and I'm sorry, not Jim Lavelle, even Chief Curry says in his autobiography in 1970, we have no motive and nobody can place him in that window at the time of the shooting. Yeah. I mean, they just have stories about him being there. And so, I mean, I've heard even stories that he wasn't even, may not even have been at the book depository and that. They just well, said that he was there. It might have been somebody else. It's really something else. Like, well, I mean, he the, could have, they could have had a, a, a double. There's a lot of people that were impersonating Oswald around town, uh, including Michael Payne. Uh, but I actually believe Oswald was in the school book depository, but he was in the second floor lunchroom. He was seen by two different people four minutes before the assassination. Now, what's interesting about that, William, is he was seen in the lunchroom at 1226, the assassination happened at 1230, and uh, Roy Truly and Officer Baker uh, saw him in the lunchroom at 1232. Now, here's the interesting thing about if he's in the lunchroom at 1226 and 1232, how did he get upstairs by 1230 and miraculously fire off these shots? Well, he didn't because the motorcade was running 15 minutes late. Kennedy was uh, supposed to start speaking at the trademark at 1230. If Oswald was the lone assassin, he would have no way of knowing the motorcade was running late and he would have been up in that window the entire time waiting for him to come by. Good point. He would have been waiting there for 20, 30 minutes or something. There were only two phone call there were only two phones in that entire building in 1963. One was in the lunchroom where Oswald was, the other was in Roy Truly's office. It's really incredible. And I was having a discussion with somebody. You mentioned Lansdale in your book. Do you believe Lansdale, that picture of the three tramps, that that oh, is Lansdale? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was confirmed by Prudy, right? Didn't Fletcher Prudy say that was him? Uh, Fletcher Prouty. Um, yeah. Uh, Fletch, uh, I knew Fletch before he passed away, but uh, Fletch confirmed it. Um, 
and and since then several others have confirmed it was him. He's tied, uh, you know, obviously with the uh, the Pentagon military intelligence. He's tied into you know all of these programs that the uh, CIA was running at the time. Uh, Operation Mongoose. I mean, Operation Forty, Alpha Sixty Six, ZR Rifle. I mean, all of these programs that they were participating in. Lansdale was one of the key people on it. And it's, it's a part of a group called the SGA Special Group Augmented that, again, is in our book. And it shows the list of the people that supposedly are the top, you know, 10 people in all these government uh, agencies that should have information about this. And Ed Lansdale's name is there every single time. Incredible. And then he has a career after this. I think I think it was in your book. He, like, resigned November 1st. 63 and then the assassination happens and then he gets hired by the cia like it's super suspect like his whole career arc but yeah i mean there's so much we missed we didn't go into the mob we didn't cover the fbi i I saw a document in here i'd never seen before that ties oswald to the cia and the fbi there's a lot more in this book guys it's chock full of information uh how would you guys like word about 37 minutes how would you guys like to end up would you uh both like to add just kind of a ending statement and then say Where's the best place to get the book and where they can reach out to you social media-wise? Go ahead, Tim. Um, go ahead. Um, well, you can get our book. Uh, we would prefer you go to the website because even if you don't want to purchase the books or the documentary films we've done, there's a lot of free information available on our website. That is www.thejfkassassination.com. Our uh, books and videos are also available on amazon.com. And um, we're working on uh, the next book in the Mark for Death series about uh, Robert Kennedy. And again, it's going to be called RFK Mark for Death. Um, and the tagline is going to be Brothers in uh, Death, uh, Brothers in Life and Death. And again, it's going to go all into the RFK assassination at that point. And um, as far as social media goes, I mean, I just I don't have a Facebook page on uh, the Kennedy assassination yet. Um, I just have a, a standard Facebook personal page. But like I said, the best way to reach us is through the, the website, the JFKassassination.com. Like I said, tons of docu- all the documents that are in the books are on the website. A lot of the photographs are uh, on the website. Bio about Tim and I exactly. There you go. So it, it's all available. It's Philip Nelson. I've interviewed him too. Um, yeah. So your website again is www.thejfkassassinationalloneword.com. There's contact information there. And yeah. great job on the book. Like there's stuff in there. I've done a fair share of uh, research, but stuff that I learned too. So, William, I'll, to you. I'll just share a little anecdote. Uh, Please do. Uh, I play trivia every Tuesday night, and uh, uh, a couple in there, probably late 70s, uh, bought both books. And uh, the last time I was up there, uh, the gentleman came up to me and he said he was reading the JFK book. He said, I, I, I had to put it down. He said, I, I can't believe what I'm reading. He said, and I know it's true. I would have never imagined it. Um, you know, he's going to pick it up and, of course, read the rest of it. But uh, the reviews from uh, uh, other researchers, uh, from people who have read the book, are all extremely positive, which uh, is, you know, Great for us to hear. Um, not, not in it to make money, in it to get the truth out, and and maybe sometime for somebody in our government to just finally admit who was really involved. Just just admit it. 
You know, the, the truth is not as painful as a lie. Um, so anyway, uh, we think people, we think the books are easy to read. They, they can be read and they don't have to be read chapter to chapter. You can pick a chapter you want to read and read about it. Uh, but I guarantee you, anybody who reads these two books will learn things they did not know. Yeah, like, I, like I, as I did. So thank you so much for your time. Again, the book we talked about is JFK Mark for Death, Who Stood to Lose at JFK Lived. And the authors are Gary Fannin and Tim Brennan. And I will put a link to their website in the show notes so you can just link right through. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. Take care. Cool. cool. Stay there. Stay there.